This is Benjamin De Luna, founder of the ICERS Foundation, and you're listening to NTO Nation with Lorna Liana. Welcome to MTO Nation, where we feature visionaries who are pioneering the cutting edge of awakening. Psychedelic science, modern shamanism, neuroscience, new paradigm lifestyles. Get ready to harness the power of visionary states and forge reality into your wildest dreams. tribe of Entheo Nation. This is Lorna Liana here, coming back from an amazing three-day campout with visionary culture creators at Turtle Creek, the home of Nikki and Swami, the cannabis couple, premium producers of high-quality medical marijuana, and Emerald Cup judges. It was a weekend of beautiful nature, great food, great company, great music, and inspiring talks on a wide range of topics from plant medicine consciousness to cannabis industry trends and UFOs. If you ever have a chance to be invited, my one warning to you is to eat a quarter of the recommended serving of whatever edible delight is being offered, or you might find yourself immobilized on a sofa for five straight hours. If you haven't had a chance to check out my interview with Nikki and Swami on how they were able to qualify over 400 entries to the Emerald Cup, then mosey on over to entheonation.com slash 16 and discover their secrets to weeding through the weed. Before I hop into this episode on ayahuasca defense and the road to decriminalization with Benjamin DeLunin of ICERS, the International Center for Ethnobotanical Education, Research, and Service, I want to give a shout out to Galactivate, who left us a five-star review on iTunes. He says, Entheonation is an engaging, relevant, inspiring, and skillfully produced podcast that should be on the radar of all who recognize the importance that entheogens can play in our human quest towards making meaning and making change, and for enriching our public conversations on how both indigenous culture and plant medicines can help us heal as a global society. Thanks so much, Galactivate. Now, global interest in ayahuasca has exploded in the recent years, with celebrities speaking out openly about their transformational ayahuasca experiences, and more and more stories coming out about the visionary brew in mainstream media channels, with wide-ranging reports as a drug used by fanatical cults to a potential powerful cure for depression and cancer that merits more clinical research. Ayahuasca-related deaths also receive disproportionate, hyped-up media attention, even though they represent a minuscule fraction of the deaths caused by alcohol, tobacco, and many legal pharmaceutical drugs. Not surprisingly, ayahuasca arrests have also gone up globally as well, and lawmakers unfamiliar with ayahuasca's long history of cultural and medicinal use are making decisions that have long-term ramifications for the legal use of this plant medicine in religious ceremonies, traditional healing, and psychotherapy. Benjamin DeLunin, founder of ICERS, the organization behind the World Ayahuasca Conference, joins us today to discuss their new initiative, the Ayahuasca Defense Fund. 
The challenges in defending legal cases involving the transport and distribution of ayahuasca and why the decriminalization of ayahuasca hinges on the outcomes of cases happening now. If you regularly consume ayahuasca and believe that the use, possession, and distribution of this traditional plant medicine should be decriminalized, then you're going to want to check out the resources mentioned in the show notes at entheonation.com slash 17. I also invite you to check out our YouTube channel, where you'll find even more resources about psychedelic science, cannabis consciousness, modern shamanism, and field reports from the jungle. Just go to youtube.com slash entheonation. If you would like to receive a free transcript of this episode, it is super easy. Simply text Entheonation, that is E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N, to the number 44222. Just reply to the SMS with your best email to get access to premium content that's only available to bona fide citizens of Entheonation. If you like this episode, I would so appreciate it if you would take the time to rate and review this show in iTunes, as this will increase Entheonation's visibility in the iTunes marketplace and help get this life-changing information out to the people who need it. Now on to the show. Hello, beautiful tribe of Entheonation. This is Lorna Liana here, and welcome back to another episode. I am here today with Benjamin DeLunin, who is the founder and executive director of the International Center for Ethnobotanical Education, Research, and Service, which is a recognized UN consultative charitable organization that is dedicated to working towards a world in which traditional consciousness expanding plants like ayahuasca and iboga can be available legally and safely to those who can benefit from using them. What started off as a graduation project at film school turned into a mission to further legal and human rights matters related to sacred plant medicines. Ben is here today to discuss the importance of legal defense, education, science, and psychological support of the communities that use visionary plant medicines. Thank you so much for joining us today on Entheonation, Benjamin. Thank you very much for having me on your show. So I'd love to hear more about your work and what led you to start your organization, ICERS. So basically, ICERS, the name says it, it focuses on ethnobotanicals, so traditional plants. We focus on a specific family of traditional plants, like ayahuasca and, and, and iboga. And we work in the three areas of education, research, and, and service. No? So basically, in, in education, we, we try to be a um, source of reliable information for, for the community, for policymakers, generally audience that might you know hear about the existence of these plants. We use the visual media, the internet, we organize conferences, and so forth. And then we also do research. So we do our own research and we try to make science understandable and to make science also a tool in the discussion about policy and the risks and potential benefits of these plants. And then also for the last five, six years, we've been involved very much in legal defense in supporting people who got increasingly confronted with the justice system, you know, and the, the drug control system and for the use and importation about specifically ayahuasca. And then lastly, we also have a service for people who have experienced these plants. Sometimes they might have difficult experiences that they, they didn't integrate properly. Or people have questions, they are interested in doing iboga for addiction or for whatever purpose, and they just want more information to be able to take a responsible decisions. So we also have a psychologist in our team who kind of interacts with people with questions or in need of support. 
So I've been noticing an explosion of interest in Western cultures around the use of ayahuasca. So I've been working with ayahuasca probably since 2004. And I kind of feel like, you know, back in the day, it was still very much an underground thing. And now I'm seeing, you know, the celebrities coming out and ayahuasca being covered in CNN and Vanity Fair and all these major mainstream news channels and media outlets. And so what I'm curious to know from your perspective, perspective is given this increased interest in this traditional plant medicine, what do you see as the road towards legalization or at least decriminalization to look like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a complicated and delicate time I think we're living in, because as you say, it's booming so quickly now. It's all all over the place and, you know, the celebrities, Hollywood discovered ayahuasca. So now it's really appearing in in, uh, mainstream media. And also the other thing that happens is that we have this whole epidemic of the new psychoactive substances where there's this generalized fear about. So, you know, every year there's probably a hundred new substances that people develop in laboratories. You know, they change molecules a little bit from other drugs that are already available. And so because these new substances are not illegal, they are sold and then they become illegal. But the justice system or the control system is always behind. And so so there's a lot of publications on the European Union as well and the UN. They kind of see this as a big health threat because these are substances where there's no scientific evidence about what the short, mid or long term effects or risks are. There's no human history of use. And so increasingly we see how ayahuasca has been pushed in that same category. You know, you know it's a new psychoactive substance. But of course, there's a very long history of traditional use. There's quite a lot of science we have now about the fact that it's not toxic and its safety profile is acceptable. So we see that the UK, for example, just recently started a blank ban on anything that influences your emotion or your central nervous system, which is immediately illegal from the beginning. So these blank bans, this paranoia is kind of, well, drug policy in general is going towards the direction of being more tolerant and less justice focused. Around these plants, or around the ayahuasca specifically, I feel that there's more and more political pressure and more pressure from law enforcement. So um, I think it's important that as a community we do something about that. No? And we respond sensibly and, and with a good strategy to that threat. And there's various strategies that I think are important in that quest. One important one is the Ayahuasca Defense Fund, no? which we are now uh, launching, where you know, we resp- through legal defense, you kind of generate the arguments that then you also use in policy reform. But you also you see each case, you know, as a potential opportunity for a setting a legal precedent and and basically as an opportunity to educate lawmakers and, and the judge and you know everybody involved in those processes about what they really have at hand. You know, and the fact that they can really understand that what we have at hand is not just another new psychoactive substance. It is a very important cultural practice with many dimensions to that. We are talking about plant preparations that are not illegal according to the UN conventions. And just the whole behavior around ayahuasca is, I think, very unique because it's almost always, I could say, it's used ceremonially, whether it's traditional uh, ceremonies or religious rites or maybe some more modern ritualistic settings. So ayahuasca traveled outside of the Amazon within a ceremonial context, which with other, also other traditional plants has been very different. With salvia divinorum, for example, you know, ended up in the smart shops as an extract that people smoke. 
Ayahuasca in that sense is, is quite unique. And, and also the demographic of people interested in ayahuasca is quite unique, I think. And it's, it's much more people who are interested in improving something in their life, people interested in like conscious living or healthy living that might be interested as well in, in meditation or healthy food or yoga or whatever it is they do. So we see that, um, that very often people engaging with ayahuasca are more in, in search for to improve something in their life or connect with you know, spirituality and those type of things and not so much seeking for new, like new sensations or a new high thrills. No, <laughs> yeah. It's really not a party favorite drug at all. You know, you projectile vomit. So that means you're not going to go out most likely, or if you did exactly. go out, you just make a nuisance of yourself. And then it's not really something that you feel inclined to do again and again and again in a compulsive way. Like you, you know, most mm. people, when they have their experience, they're just like, okay. You know, if they had a really full strong experience, it's like, I got a lot to process right now. I don't really need to do this next week or tomorrow or anything. So it's not addictive in that way. In fact, many people actually turn to ayahuasca for addiction treatment, for therapy around their addiction to even more detrimental drugs like heroin and crack and cocaine. So, you know, I, I find it really interesting that law enforcement just really ignores all the information that we have around the safety of ayahuasca, its traditional long-standing, you know, centuries-long traditional usage, and, you know, its medical benefits, which our international drug laws recognize none. So I'm curious to know what your take is on why there is such a big disconnect with, between science and law enforcement. Well, you know, some people have these theories that the government is not interested in having ayahuasca available. I, when, from the things I see in, in the court, for example, I believe that it's just pure ignorance, no? And that, um, and judges are very often lost. They see all of these, you know, they, they see crime, they see cocaine trafficking, a lot of money involved, guns, you know, of that type of uh, environment. And then they uh, arrest now this new person and it's for ayahuasca drug trafficking, no? And then, the person in front of them talks about subjects they generally never, you know, hear. All of a sudden, they, there's this whole ceremonial aspect to it, the cultural aspect. So very often they're kind of lost in, you know, what, what the hell is this topic now I have here on, on my desk? So I see a role really, you know, to collaborate with the defendants and with the lawyers to educate them, basically, and to give them the full spectrum about, you know, what are really the health implications of this phenomenon of, of the use of ayahuasca. What does the science say, both about the, the, the substance itself, no? so the plant concoctions, and, you know, related to the context of use or more of the observational research. So what does all of that show us? Also, very often, they don't understand that... Even though ayahuasca contains DMT, that according to the UN, ayahuasca is not illegal. So no plant or concoction made out of plants that contain DMT, or it could be mescaline or, you know, the scheduled uh, psychotropes. The plants or the concoctions are not considered illegal according to the conventions. And that for a judge very often is also something they don't really, you know, that doesn't make sense to them. Yeah, DMT is illegal, so why would ayahuasca not be illegal? Because it contains DMT. And so, you know, then you go into, um, you know, many of the aspects that surround the topic, no? Like, for example, the percentage of DMT in ayahuasca is very, very low. And it is really not about the DMT. It's a mixture of plants which, uh, you know, contain a whole variety of alkaloids that all have their effects. You know, the context of use is very different from, for example, injecting or inhaling DMT would be... 
So we really try to um, yeah, educate about the fact that they have something else here, you know, and, it, and that it actually does make sense that DMT would be something else than, than ayahuasca, even though there's small proportions of naturally occurring DMT in the plant. There's a lot of plants that have DMT in it. Mother's milk has DMT in it. So you want to make breast milk illegal? Yeah. I mean, yes, I mean, <laughs> you know, there's, some believe that there's DMT in the pineal gland. You know, that's, that's just a theory and it's not proven, but, but they have found DMT in the body. We have, we have no idea what the function is of that DMT, but it is a fact that DMT is in many things in nature. And so you can't really, it doesn't make sense to then start prohibiting all of, all of that plant life and animal life and maybe human, human life. So in that sense, of course, the whole drug control system is totally flawed. And I think, I mean, it's improductive to uh, deal with drug use from a criminal uh, point of view. It is a human right point of view. And, uh, and of course, there's, you know, it's important to focus much more on health. So that, for me, is central with all substances. But, of course, particularly with these traditional plants and the practices that surround them, we are talking here about a practice that is much more ancient than the drug control system. And the drug control system was not established because all of these people are having difficulties with ayahuasca in the Amazon, you know, for example, or with Iboga and the Buiti. You know, it's, it's just a system that came out of a generalized fear, which is not rational. It's not focused on scientific evidence or, you know, it's very much focused on moral judgment of drug users. So, yeah, that in itself is a whole complexity. And we also believe that things need to change. And luckily, things are changing bit by bit on a national level. You know, the governments are understanding that people shouldn't go to jail for using substances. But yeah, here we just have this very important cultural practice, which yeah gives us plants that are potentially the tools that we need to integrate to address problems that we have difficulties to address, like depression, like addiction, like complicated grief processes and PTSD. But even more so than that, this could be seen as preventive medicine in a way as well, no? where healthy growth, of course, avoids problems like depression or like addiction. <laughs> So these are, in a way, a catalyst for personal growth or spirituality. And to many, it's a sacrament. So we have this whole thing of the right for religion, no? the freedom of religion. So all of that needs to be taken into account when an ayahuasca case comes on the desk of a judge. But we see a lot of cases nowadays. So, yeah, it's incredibly difficult to demonstrate medical benefit and use if the substance itself is prohibited. So I'm curious to know, based on your research, what substantial medical information do we have around ayahuasca? What kind of scientific research has already been performed that could stand up in the court of law? Well, the science that in the court of law is used is on one hand about the effects of ayahuasca and the risks involved, you know, to talk about is this a threat to public health, no? and is for people who use this, does it harm them? That's one side of the story, and then you have the other story, which is, well, does it even have therapeutic potential or can help people with certain conditions? The first type of research, we have a lot. You know, there's been laboratory studies with humans, with animals. There's been a, done a lot to demonstrate that ayahuasca is not toxic, that it doesn't create addiction, it doesn't create tolerance, so you don't need more to have the same effect. It's the people who use it even for a long time, for up to, you know, there was a study with users that had been doing it for 50 years every two months as part of their Santa Daime rituals and you know it didn't show that they all have brain damage or whatever problems they have 
So we know quite sure that, uh, you know, there's a lot of science to underscore that ayahuasca is not a threat to public health in that sense. On the other side, when you try to demonstrate that it is a lot of therapeutic potential, that's very limited. So we still have limited scientific evidence to say it's an efficient tool in the treatment of addiction, even though there is some which suggest it might be, you know, so for sure more research should be done in that field and anecdotal evidence shows that people can moderate or improve their unhealthy relationships with certain drugs or, or other behavior. So we have some stuff there. There's some about grief as well that has come out. You know, for depression now there's the first studies, but it are all small sample sizes generally. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, more needs to be done to really be able to demonstrate with certainty that this is really very efficient in all of these fields. But science is advancing and there is science to make a case out of that. No, so and what you said before, you know, it's not really true that the fact that these plants might be illegal in certain countries that doesn't allow you to do research with them because even with scheduled drugs you can do research there's research into heroin and cocaine and you know whatever it is so you know it can also be done with this the problem is that there's a stigma on it so when an ethics committee gets to approve this it's always going to be more difficult when it's a psychoactive than you know when it's something they really know so that is an issue and of course when something is schedule one you know it's The definition suggests it has a high potential for abuse and no accepted medical treatment. So to then say that we actually have to investigate this for potential therapeutic uses, that can be problematic. Or they could say, well, it's Schedule 1, so why would we bother to further investigate? So the legal position of these plants makes it more difficult to make science, but it's not really a legal thing. I think it's much more of a... Like a bureaucratic hurdle. Yes, exactly. It's more stigma around and then... Mm -hmm. The ethics committee might not want to approve a study like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the other thing which is important is, of course, to do research, you need money. And mm-hmm. so, for example, some of the biggest institutions like NIDA, for example, in the U.S. that gives funding to research, they generally don't give money to this type of research. So the financial aspect is equally difficult to uh, do research in this field. Mm-hmm. Those are very excellent points that you've made. I'm curious to know, do you have a list of the countries where ayahuasca use is legal or at least not considered to be a criminal activity? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a very complex situation around the legality of ayahuasca. On one hand, so we have the international conventions, which the UN at some point agreed with all the member states. So all of the UN member states follow those conventions. And so in the 1971 convention, DMT is one of the illegal psychotropes. But they themselves say that ayahuasca is not, or the plants are not illegal. But anyway, so all the countries follow that. So DMT is illegal everywhere in every country on the planet that signed the Convention of 1971. And so that creates a grain zone in the whole world. No? So DMT is illegal, but then according to the UN, ayahuasca is not. But does that make sense? So, so there's no legal protection in most countries. It's a gray zone, but it's not really illegal. It's, you know, so ayahuasca is not illegal. But it contains something that's illegal and that's why it's a difficult gray zone where arrest could take place and then it's in court where you really have to convince them that DMT and ayahuasca is something different. In a few countries there is legal protection. One is Brazil where the churches, so it's only for religious purposes, they have legal status there. So they're recognized as to be able legally to import or to produce and, and use ayahuasca. In the U.S. as well, you have the the Uniado Vegetal, one of the churches that achieved after a long 10-year process to get the DEA license to legally import ayahuasca and use it everywhere in the United States. 
you have then the Santo Daime, which got more of an exemption or in one state where they can use ayahuasca. In the Netherlands, the same happens, only religious use is recognized there. So there's a few legal churches that are operating in Holland. That's basically it. Maybe I'm forgetting the country, but I think that's about it where ayahuasca is, is really can be used legally in a legally protected way. So then if you look at the traditional countries, so for example, Colombia or Peru, you know, some of them didn't made an exemption of the drug conventions where they specifically said that ayahuasca will not prosecute in their country. So Peru is one of them, but there's no law within Peru that clearly says that ayahuasca is legal in the other countries either. But it's, of course, not legally prosecuted there because it's considered part of the of culture. And then also in Peru, it's culturally protected. So it's the only country where ayahuasca is by UNESCO recognized as a national cultural heritage. Love this episode? You can receive the transcript for free by simply texting Entheonation, that's E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N, to the number 44222. All you need to do is to reply to the SMS message with your best email address, and we'll send you the transcript and our guide to navigating visionary states for free as a VIP citizen of Entheonation. So how many active court cases are there around the illegal use of ayahuasca right now? And, you know, what happens to people? Yeah, so um, we looked a bit at the cases and uh, until 2009, there's a probably there has been a few cases. I might not be aware of all of them, but I think, you know, it's in around the, cor- the order of five, six cases maybe around the world. Uh, and then Sunday started to increase very much. And then we have seen, I counted almost, I think it was more than 70 cases since then. So since the beginning of 2010 until now, it's been o- over 70 cases. So that's quite a lot. Spain is responsible for uh, 44 of those cases. So it's in a way peculiar situation, um, which has to do more with the fact that at some point they installed a liquid scanner in the airport of Madrid to detect cocaine, which was more smuggled in liquid form. And then, of course, they found bottles with a brown liquid, and then they tested positive to DMT. And then always the police would appear. I mean, the the postman would hand in a package. When people would sign for it, the police would jump out of the car and and arrest them. But we've seen it this spread. Right now, for example, we're helping people in, I think, about seven, eight countries. Israel is one of them, Canada, Germany, France, Spain, Belgium. Malta, Poland, so it's quite spread out, quite a lot happening in in Europe. But also in the U.S. there's a case, you know, it's everywhere, nowhere. And of course these practices are now more and more popular, so it's more all over the place. So we don't know exactly how that increase relates to the increase in arrest. But what is important is that all of a sudden the increase has gone quite abrupt and not so gradual as I think the ayahuasca movement has grown. And so generally these cases, until now, most of them, uh, I mean, a number of cases still haven't gone to court, so we don't know what's going to happen with some. Generally, the accusations are about five years of prison, four or five years of prison. In the U.S., this could be much more, no, in, in some other countries as well. In Spain, we have the luck that drug use, personal use is decriminalized of any substance. So hmm. when people can demonstrate that the ayahuasca was for personal use, then at the end, it's not a criminal case anymore. Of any substance like LSD or... Exactly, yes. Or- Anything, oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Huh. 
this is like really Portugal impressive. as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, Portugal as well has this. Portugal is known for this because it was the changed quite, you know, only I think maybe now 15 years ago. Spain has always been like that. Mm. So that's the luck that some of these people have had in the, in the court cases. Some have ended very positively where the judge recognized basically that according to the UN, this is not clearly illegal. So that it's difficult to then say that in Spain, ayahuasca is legal. And, and so until now in Spain, only one person really was convicted, but she declared guilty out of fear. She didn't have any expert um, advice or nobody was really helping her. She didn't reach out to us either. So she out of fear just declared guilty, which was a big mistake. <laughs> And so, you know, some of the cases now happening, we really don't know what's going to happen. The penalties, for example, in, in Israel, they're, you know, they can be quite high as well. So each case really, you know, needs to be defended properly. And it's in a way an, a threat because when in one country a case is improperly handled and lost, then it can set a precedent, no? And then that basically closes the door in that country for... Um, some legal protection at some point or at some level for the people working with ayahuasca. On the other hand, if you manage to really have a good outcome, even though it's not a Supreme Court situation, it kind of opens the door a little bit. And it, you know, there's now a precedent and in a future court case, this could be used as well to say, well, but, you know, the prior case where the judges looked into all of the aspects and the risks and the effects and the legality and all of that, they concluded it's not illegal. So, so that's something we have been doing increasingly. In 2010, beginning of 2010, it was when we for the first time got notice of a court case of, of ayahuasca, which was in Chile. Three different people contacted us. I decided to help. And so we, we started to align our scientific knowledge with the lawyers there. And that was our first experience. And they won. And the judges even recognized that the, the ayahuasca had been beneficial for the participants. They recognized it was not illegal. I got a letter from the International Narcotics Control Board, which is the UN body that controls these substances, where they said that ayahuasca is not illegal under the international conventions and that we had to ask the Chilean authorities if they had a specific law for ayahuasca, which they didn't. And so all of that was used in the, in the case. And in that experience, we then started using for other cases in other places of the world. And we saw that very often, even the lawyers, they don't believe that there's a space to really fight and that it's really not clear that this is an illegal practice. They always think, well, this is DMT and we kind of have to do what we can to, you know, rely on technical mistakes in the process or negotiate with the authorities to come to a settlement. And they, they generally don't believe in the, at first hand that actually it's much more complex and that there is actually something to say based on the international conventions and the type of practice that ayahuasca is, that it's actually, you know, something that should not be considered illegal. So what are you hoping to achieve with the ayahuasca defense fund that you are currently raising money for? Yeah, so the ayahuasca defense fund really came out of, on one hand, our experience over the last six years in helping people with legal problems, and we were helping them the best way we could. You know, we got this experience in Chile, then we made it available to DeLorean somewhere else. And it was kind of just responding to a social need no, for so long. And as we saw that there was a growing need each time, more and more arrest, it was more and more widespread. That's when we organized the first World Ayahuasca Conference in, in Ibiza. And we decided to get all of these lawyers who had successfully defended ayahuasca cases all in the same room. Not only them, to also get people who are really very knowledgeable on policy reform and engaging with policymakers to get in that same room, even though 
at first some of them didn't really have a big interest in this topic, thinking it was a bit of a marginal, small community, uh, you know, crazy thing from the Amazon. And we managed to get them all in the same room. And that's when we established a committee. Some of them have been very actively involved as well with legal defense. Some have won very complex cases over many years. And so now we have this expert committee. And so what the ideas of and what we hope to achieve with the Ayahuasca Defense Fund is through centralizing all of that expertise worldwide, expertise in, in the international conventions and, and expertise in legal defense, more in national realities, and, and then in the scientific and technical knowledge about ayahuasca, to centralize that and be able to use that for defense so that each case can turn into a positive precedent. And even a step before that, to make sure that the community can have access to reliable information. Because it's such a complex subject, the legality of ayahuasca. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. People don't really know until what level they are protected or not. Some think it's, you know, it's completely legal, some don't. So, so we really try to also provide reliable information to the community so that they can take responsible decisions. And then in terms of legal defense, you know, that experience or, or all of the evidence that we accumulate and, and develop for those cases to then put that in the service of engaging with policymakers. And ultimately, the goal we have is through the work of the Ayahuasca Defense Fund to work towards a world where there can be a legal framework no, for the use and and where at least the legality or the legal situation is clear, where there's an understanding of the cultural value and the religious value of a lot of these practices. That's what we are, we are trying to achieve. And, and what we hope is that we can also centralize community resources, financial resources, and establish a network of lawyers in the whole world so that with all of that combined, we really have a very strong yeah, body or mechanism to deal with this um, situation currently. So what do you think needs to happen for there to be legal ayahuasca? You know, it depends on the country, of course. In some countries, the good road to go is to try to achieve a recognition of religious freedom, like the UDV and the Santa Dime achieved, um, you know, in the US. In other countries, that's really not the way to go because they might be very paranoid for cults and, and even small religious groups using psychoactive substances. I mean, you know, some countries, that's just not the, the most efficient road. Uh, in Spain, there's the Cannabis Social Club model, which is a private non-profit user association model, which might be also a, a good framework for the you know, use of these plants, where, you know, shamanic groups could establish as such an uh, association. You know, it depends really on the country. So um, within the experience that we are accumulating, you know, in legal defense and engaging with policy, that's that's really things that you know can be defined no and in an outcome of a legal case in a specific country can really you know give more insight on what steps can we take in that particular country to get to a situation where people could be certified to work with it or or at least people can you know have a situation where they can engage in these practices without having to fear yeah legal prosecution and then of course there's a difficulty because sometimes you know we see that in the community we still I guess to some people need to clarify the way that the ayahuasca defense funds will will work, no, and is working, because there's of course people who are into this for the whole wrong reasons. There's opportunism. There's problematic providers, no, of ayahuasca ceremonies. So are we going to invest community resources in those people? And the answer is no. But then, you know, how do you distinguish one from the other? So what we developed is we defined three levels of support. One is more of the consultancy. You know, people are in trouble or they might feel that they might get in trouble soon and they need some advice. 
what do I say? What can I do? They confiscate my ayahuasca. And so we kind of give them initial information about the legal status and, you know, what they can do. So that's one thing. So from there, when people get into legal problems, we really, what we do is we start working with them. We start accompanying them in that process. And within that process, we start to learn how they worked, who they are, what their training is. You know, we look into basically the whole environment around that person or group and establish that rela- that relationship, you know, and then through that relationship, we can, based on a set of criteria that we set, which is, are available on the website, and also the available funds and, and the complexity of the case, really define until what extent are we going to help? You know, are we going to really put in also financial resources in that case? Are we writing a technical report for them or going as expert witness testimonies? Like all of that is is really defined within the process. And sometimes people might be working very w- in a very responsible way with ayahuasca, but really, you know, not very collaborative with us, you know, not giving us the information we need, not basically having an open dialogue in continuously within the process, which, you know, makes it difficult also for us to help. So if that's the relationship that's established, then it's also more difficult to help. And then probably we won't really invest so much in that case. No? So it's really a case by case situation where we always take into account the ethics and responsibility of the person and, and the group, the legal situation nationally, and basically the yeah the working relationship we establish. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Thank you so much for this uh, extensive conversation and you know all the information mm. that you provided around the complexities of ayahuasca and the legal system. So I'd love mm-hmm. to ask you. How can our audience best stay in touch with you and get involved in your initiative? Yeah, so there's a website which is defendayahuasca.org. So I would invite people to go there. All of the information is there about the three different levels of support, the support criteria, the way the fund works. And also there's a lot of information there, which we just started, but we want to expand on a continuous basis, which is about the legal peculiarities on the international level and also per country. So... I think now we have uh, information about countries like the US, Holland, Peru, Spain, the UK, and we are going to expand. So we really want to build a world map where we can, for every country, people can have access to information like what is the law say in my country? Have there been arrests in the past? If so, how did they end? What is really the legal situation in my country? So all of that is also on that website. We have a Facebook group as well, which is, you know, facebook.com slash defend, I think it's defend ayahuasca, Twitter as well. And then also, if you go now to the website, defendayahuasca.org, there's a, if you click on the donate button, it leads you to the crowdfund campaign we are doing right now. And so there's also a video there where we explain more, you know, what we are doing. There's a whole text. So I would invite people to, to research more about this initiative and, and, you know, get involved and, you know, contribute if they can. So, mm-hmm. Well, I'm very happy to support your work, Benjamin. I think it is deeply needed in this world. And thank you so much for doing this. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for joining us for this episode. And I want to wish you a beautiful rest of your evening. All right. Thank you so much for having me. And I'll be in touch. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining us today. As you can see, ayahuasca legal defense is extremely complex and successfully defended cases will open up access to this life-saving and life-changing medicine for more people around the world who need it. I do encourage you to support ICR's crowdfunding campaign if you believe that people have the right to access this medicine without fear of prosecution.
If you'd like to revisit this episode in print, you can get access to our transcript library by texting Entheonation, that's E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N, to the number 44222. Just reply to the SMS with your best email and never miss an episode. I also recommend you mosey on over to Entheonation on YouTube to check out some of our exclusive video field reports at Visionary Gatherings and Spotlights on Modern Shamanic Life in the Amazon. Now I'm so thrilled to introduce you to Web of One, which delighted the guests with their high vibrational songs at the Turtle Creek Gathering this weekend. Here's their track called Bitter Medicine from their album Illuminate. Enjoy.
cura que sabe. 